The book is 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel were originally one book, and they tell one story. And that's the transition from the judges to the kings. Samuel was the last judge, the first prophet. Saul was the first king, but in 1 Samuel, David is anointed. He's elected and he's anointed, but he doesn't take position yet. We're going to be looking at David and his rise tonight, mostly in 2 Samuel chapter 5 through 8. But the story of David actually begins in 1 Samuel 16, and it ends in 1 Kings chapter 2. Uh, last week, Pastor Brandon shared with us of David defeating the giant and becoming a hero. Uh, his name was highly esteemed, but he was of little stature. Saul, though, was head and shoulders above everyone. He was chosen by the people. Saul pursued David. He tried to kill him twice with a spear. David spared his life two times. I like what he said about the spear and how it, recognized, how it represented security and statue and power and authority. And we learned in his lesson on how to handle our enemies if we allow him to, or that God will handle our enemies if we allow him to. If we wait for things to pass, like the passing of a spear past our head. But don't we all have a little Saul in us? Don't we all kind of want to fight back, pick up the spear, and send it back? But the instruction was just duck. Remember that? Just duck. That was what we were told. Don't throw the spear back. Let God take care of it. In those last chapters of 1 Samuel, we saw the death of Saul and the death of Samuel. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to glean the things that you want us to learn from the life of David in these next few studies as we, as we begin 2 Samuel tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So David rules for 40 years, and 2 Samuel highlights the events of David's reign. We're going to be looking tonight primarily at what happens as he becomes the, the ruling king. First, he rules over Judah, and then he rules over the entire nation. In addition to his uh, ascension to greatness, which is what we're going to be focusing on, 2 Samuel also records the climatic sin of adultery and murder and the consequences of these great sins to his family and to his nation. David is a type of Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem. He was a shepherd. He ruled as a king. The Psalms reflect this. His rejection by the people he talks about his blessings and the glory that he gets from God. Many pictures of Jesus are in the Psalms that David wrote, Psalms 22, Psalms 23, things that we know. And David is the halfway point between Abraham and Jesus. The New Testament is full of references to David and to his lineage and to the Christ. In, the, in Luke, in the very first part of the New Testament, we read this in Luke chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In Romans chapter 1, the first epistle that we have listed in the New Testament, Paul starts it by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning the son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And then in the very last chapter of the Bible, some of the very last words of, 
of Jesus. He's Jesus, having sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So throughout the whole New Testament, references to David, his lineage, and coming to Christ. But David, in spite of his sins that we'll, we'll look at in future studies, is a man after God's heart. He did not allow idolatry to come in and become a problem like many of the kings that follow him. Like Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel will show us that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. We're going to look at the covenant that God made with David. So in the first four chapters, now, when we give you the reading assignment, that doesn't mean we're going to cover every verse, every word, explain the whole thing. You're to read those, and then Pastor Brandon and myself will wait upon the Lord to see what he wants us to bring, what kind of application we can receive from the teaching and from those chapters. So I'm going to highlight a few chapters and then start uh, getting more in detail in chapter 5. So in chapter 1, Saul and Jonathan and Jonathan's death are recounted. And David's heart is revealed. Look at chapter 1 of Second Samuel, verses 11 and 12. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And of course, Saul was after David the whole time, but David realizes that he was the king. Jonathan, of course, was his close friend, tears his robe and mourns, but he has the people mourn for the benefit of Israel. In chapter 2, verse 1, David seeks direction. And then in verse 4, he's anointed king. So it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall shall I go up into any cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go? And he said, Go to Hebron. And then jumping down to verse 4, Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, And they told David, saying, The men of Jabeth, Gilead, were the ones who buried Saul. In verse 8, Saul's son Ishbosheth was made king over Israel in um, Saul's place, and civil war begins. And then chapters 3 and 4, the civil war continues until the death of Ishbosheth. And that brings us to chapter 5, so let's read the first few verses of that. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke to him, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah." We see the people recognizing three aspects of who David was and what his life was. First, he said, we're kin. 
we're bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And then his proven merit. You lead us. You have taken us out to battle and you have brought us back. And then his divine calling. You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over them. Back in 1 Samuel 18, there's a lot of references to David being the ruler over them. But how about us? How about Christ's kinship with us? He is our kin. We call, we're a brother of, of his. We're part of the family of God. We've been adopted by him. He has proven merit. He has saved us. He's our savior. He's advocated our cause. He's fought against our enemy. He's brought our salvation and he's given us deliverance. So he has proven merit. And he has a divine calling on all of our lives. To, him, to us, he is to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so those same three things apply to us in our lives. In verse 3, David is anointed over all Israel. In verses 6 to 9, David takes Jerusalem from the Jebusites and makes it the capital of the United Kingdom. No tribal association, therefore, it was a very good unifying effect. Now, Israel, or Jerusalem, I've heard, can cause problems amongst nations. I've heard that sometimes people don't know what to do with Jerusalem, okay? It's interesting that not any of the tribes of Israel were given Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was a perfect city for David to use for the uniting. It makes sense. Red Path had this to say about this particular few verses. On the same principle, King Jesus conquers old strongholds when he becomes king over our life. Territory that should have been given to him long ago is now conquered. Any of you holding on to any territory that God should have conquered? Any of you hanging on to something? Red Path goes on and says this, I want to say to you in the name of the Lord Jesus that there is no habit that has gone so deep, but that the power of the blood of Jesus can go deeper. And there is no enticement of sin that has gone so far, but the power of the risen Lord by his Holy Spirit can go farther. And that is so true that no matter what we have, when we give our lives to the Lord, he can take care of it. In verses 10 to 12, let's read verses 10 to 12 of chapter 5. So David went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You know, to know that the Lord is with you is an empowering um, fact. It's an empowering thing that we need. That the Lord does the establishing. He exalts, he lifts up for the good of the people Never for the good of the king or good of the, let's say, pastor or the leader in the church. When the Lord lifts people up to become a pastor, become a leader in a church, it's not for his good. It's not so that he can have the place. It's so that he can minister to the people and serve the people. Pastor Chuck knew his calling. 
14 years, he had a very unproductive ministry in the Foursquare Church. Then he went out to a couple independent churches, and it didn't go much better. Then he was in a church in Corona that had started to grow. It was doing better than any of the churches that he had ever had. But he got asked to come to a little church in Costa Mesa called Calvary Chapel with 25 people in it. And he tells of talking to Kay about this the situation. God's calling me to this church. But Chuck, this is the best church we've ever had and things are starting to work and we've got kids and blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. Chuck says, no, I'm called there. I don't know what God has planned, but I know this is where I'm going to be called. He knew that. Then by faith, he allowed God to work and Calvary Chapel happened. But he never took credit for it. I never once in all the years that I knew him ever heard him say, look what I've done, or didn't that turn out great? It always went to God. It always went to his glory. And so those of us in leadership, we need to take the lesson from that. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So David continues to consolidate the kingdom. He defeats defeats the neighboring nations, and especially the Philistines. He went after them. Look at verse uh, 19. It says, so David inquired of the Lord. In verse 23, therefore David inquired of the Lord again. What a good thing to do. Get direction. Three times so far tonight we've talked about David went and he inquired of the Lord. The first time here in verse 19, the Lord says, go get him. And he goes out and he gets him and everything went fine. The next time he inquires of the Lord, the Lord says, don't go, but do this. And he goes and he surrounds him and he makes a trap. And again, it's a great victory. I think it's important to note that David did as the Lord commanded. He did what the Lord said, even whether it made sense or not, he did what he said. And then I want to remind us that what we've heard before, from obedience brings blessing. Disobedience can bring judgment. To prove this point, look at verses 13 to 16. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammuah, Shobah, Nathan, and Solomon, and the rest of them listed there. David took more concubines. This was in direct disobedience of what the law was for kings. They were not to multiply to themselves wives or take concubines. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, Neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So more sons and daughters were born to David. Certainly David probably saw this as a blessing because in those days in that culture, a large family was wealthy and that's where you got your strength. But we're going to see that a lot of trouble comes to David's life because of women and because of his children. And it's often true that we, see, we, we um, sow the seeds of future trouble when everything is going well. Uh, we sow it when there's great success and prosperity. That's when we get in trouble. And we've seen that in a lot of big and beautiful churches where they grow and they grow and they grow and everything's going well and everything is just... You know, the money's coming in and the things are happening. 
And then they start to make mistakes and things start to happen because they sow seeds when it's going well. Back in Deuteronomy 8, 6, we studied, and this is such an important passage for all of us. When everything's going well in your life, job's good, your kids are behaving, um, your family is taken care of, and just things are going well, it's important to remember the Lord. So let me just read you a part of uh, Deuteronomy 8. When you come into the land, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you will dig copper when you have eaten and are full then you shall bless the lord your god for the good land which he has given you Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by the keeping of his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses, and they just build David's house, and dwelt in them, and when your herds and your flocks have multiplied and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions in the thirsty land where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flintly rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you, then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. So David has just become the king of Judah, the king of Israel. He's now taken Jerusalem as his capital. The, the other tribes have come. Everything's going great. And he takes these concubines and these wives and he starts to spread out and prepare for the trouble that's coming his way. So David is now um, bringing about political consolidation in Jerusalem. He moves the religious authority there too in chapter 6. So let's take a look at that. Well, we won't read chapter 6. So he wants to move the ark of God. Why not? Let's bring the ark up here. I hear where it is. The guy's house that he's staying in right now is being blessed. And he's got all kinds of blessings coming. Let's move it up to my house. Doesn't that sound like a good thing to do? So he wants to move the ark. He's doing a good thing. It's a right thing. It should get to Jerusalem if that's going to be the capital, the religious capital. We saw he's already done the um, political capital. Now we're going to see the religious capital later in chapter 8. It's the military. It becomes the military thing that he looks. So let's read the story, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, the moving of the ark. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David rose and went with all the people who were with him in Barajudah to bring up there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abibadad, which was on the hill, and Uzzah, 
and Ayo, the sons of Abadab, drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord and all kinds of instruments of fir wood, uh, fir wood on harps, on stringed instruments, and tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon, threshing floor, Uzer put out his hand uh, to steady the ark of God and took hold of it and the ox, because the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark, there by, by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak, outbreak against Uzziah, and God called the name of the place Perez Uzziah on this day, to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, "How can the ark of the Lord come to me?" So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom and the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed the house and all of his household. So David wanted to do a good thing, a right thing, but in a wrong way. Good place to use cross-references in your Bible. First Chronicles 13 to 15 adds much to this story, and Numbers chapter 4 is the original instructions on how to move the, 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 the uh, ark. This is a place in the Bible, First um, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Chronicles, where a chronological Bible works really well. And some of you have copies of those we gave out a few years ago when we did a one-year read through a chronological Bible. But I would suggest as you're going through these chapters, read the chronological Bible if you have it, or use the cross-reference in the margin notes because you will pick up a lot in the story by doing that from um, Kings and Chronicles. So first, the ark was not to be moved on a cart. It was only to be moved by the Levites. And third, it was not to be touched. So down in verses 12 to 23, the next passage, three months later, David does go bring the ark up, and this time he does it the right way. In chapter 7, David wants to build a house for the Lord. He has one, but why should the Lord still be in the tent? Why should the ark of the covenant be in the tent? in the tent. Remember back in chapter 5 we saw David inquire to the Lord? This time it doesn't say that he did, so we assume that he didn't. We don't see it here. He tells Nathan what he wants to do. I want to build a house for the Lord. Nathan says, go for it. It doesn't sound like he inquired. But God says in verses 4 to 11, no thanks. So let's look at that first part. Um, well, let's, let's just jump down to 11b. Uh, 11, where the, uh, where the Davidic covenant comes into place. Um, this covenant is a one-sided covenant that God makes with David, like he's made with Abraham and Noah and others. So let's read verses 11b through 16. Since the time that I commanded, verse 11, since I commanded the time of the judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from your enemies... Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. These words, this covenant from God, affect the whole history of mankind. From this time forward, 3,000 years to today, Jews have believed that the Messiah would come from David. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all confirm that the Messiah will come from David. The angel Gabriel, when he makes his announcement to Mary in in Luke chapter 1, he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is a divine establishment of the throne of David. While Saul was the people's choice, David is God's choice to be king. We should note there are three things about it. They are promised forever. A house or posterity. Your posterity will last forever. A throne or royal authority will last forever. And a kingdom, a sphere of influence will be there forever. In verse 16, all of these three things are secured forever again. The whole passage is written in very emphatic language. Psalms uh, 89 is a psalm of the covenant about David. It's a song about this covenant and is also written with that type of, of language. Let me read you just a couple of verses from that psalm. If you have time tonight to read Psalm 89, you'll see that it fits with this, with this um, covenant. Psalms 89, verse 29, His seed also I will make to endure forever, and this throne as the days of heaven. And then in verses 35 to 37, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Stop and think about it. It says Selah there. Covenants play an important part in the Bible. There's quite a few covenants that are listed out. I'm not going to go through the traditional ones. I'm going to go through three of them, but I'm going to look at how these fit and how these covenants play with each other and how they fit together. They all pertain to the Messiah, and it's an interesting thing. The first one, the Adamic covenant, not the first covenant, but the first one I'm looking at tonight, okay, um, says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the Messiah is now starting to be pictured. It's a promise to Adam. It's a promise to mankind of the coming of the Messiah. That's exciting. We know he's coming. Then to Abraham, when he gives him his covenant in Genesis chapter 12, If your seed, Abraham, the nation of Israel, 
the tribes, the 12 tribes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes, your nation shall be blessed because you've obeyed my law. And out of it, all the people of the world will be blessed out of your seed. The third covenant in this line of covenants comes from Jacob. It's not one of the traditional uh, covenants, but in this series it is. Genesis forty nine eighteen: The scepter shall not depart from Judah, a tribe, the authority. So now he's gone from mankind with Adam to a nation with Abraham to a tribe with Judah. And the lawgiver from between your feet will never leave until Shiloh comes. Then he goes to the family, the one that we've looked at here with David. This is a family one. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Before you, your throne shall be established forever. And this just sets the stage for one more covenant in this line of the Messiah. Isaiah adds this to this coming, to the coming of the seed of the woman, to Adam, the son of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David will be born of a virgin. So it just continues to come down until it's that specific uh, birth of um, Jesus with Mary, with the virgin. In verse 12, going back to that in chapter 7, verse 12, God predicts the birth of Solomon. Verse 12 reads, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. I'm sorry, it's in verse um, 14. But he knew, well, I'm sorry, verse 12. So, the, so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. And then in verse um, 14, now these are the names of those who were born to him. And I want to look at Nathan and I want to look at Solomon. So Solomon was, the, um, the, was not the promised perpetual seed, but he was the kingdom the, the kingship of the kingdom that would be established. In verse 13, it says, And he will build a house for Yahweh's name, and that his throne, his royal authority, would last forever. And we've seen how much references have been given to David and to his throne. And if he sins, he will be chastened by the Lord, but he will not be deposed. God shows his mercy in that. Solomon is going to sin. There is going to be discipline on Solomon and the following kings that come, but they are not disposed. The kingdom lasts until they're carried away. When we look at chapter 8, which is the uh, continuing to bring the conquest, now David brings together the military of the nation. In chapter 5, David has established the political authority. He became the king of both Judah and Israel. In chapter 6, David established the religious authority. He brought the ark back to the, to the temple mount. He put the, he put the, not the temple mount, but he put the tabernacle back in Jerusalem. He brought the ark to it, establishing the religious authority. And in this eighth chapter, he establishes his military authority. He goes out and he brings down all of these different nations. He being blessed by God for his obedience, but will be chastened later for his disobedience. You know, there's going to be much to learn in our study about David and as we go through Second Samuel and as we go into the Kings. So I would really encourage you to read these chapters because we can learn so much from his obedience and from his disobedience. 
One thing that I found interesting as I was listening to the news this morning, they were talking about, did you guys know they're fighting in Syria? You know, there's some mess going on over there and there's all kinds of problems and wars going on in Syria. So in chapter 8, when, when David is bringing about all of the consolidation of the area around him, the land, and he's bringing it into military, and it says this, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadagaster, king of Zobal, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. That's a thousand years before Christ. And 2,000 years since Christ, Syria's been at war for 3,000 years. They're still killing each other over there. It just amazed me that that long, that area has been fighting and fighting and fighting and being torn up. And it says in verse 6, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute, so that the Lord pre- uh, preserved David wherever he went. And then in verse 15 of chapter 8, it says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all the people. So here we are with David's reign or his rise to power. Things are going well. The nation's on top of it. It's going to be um, not long before the nation reaches its apex. It reaches its greatest thing. And I was just doing some search on how rich was Israel ever and how important was David or how important was Solomon and all this kind of stuff. So they looked it all up. Somebody did a research project. He was, Solomon, was the fifth richest person of all times. And so you go back and you look at all these different, really like Genghis Kong was number one. You know, Getty and, and uh, the Standard Oil guys and, and the Fords, they were all down here in a, a few hundred million or a billion. These guys were worth trillions Okay, Solomon was number five. I thought that was kind of interesting that here our nation becomes at its very best. They become so wealthy of the whole world. That was interesting. So I want to go back for a minute and talk about this thing about the seed of David because the Bible puts so much emphasis on this. If we were to do a careful study, if we were to maybe take a whole night and just look at the lineage of Christ and go through just the parts from David and how it all got there, I think it'd be a really interesting study, and it would be—it could be very exhaustive. It could take a lot of time, but just to highlight it, um, we would find that Solomon is listed in Joseph's line in Matthew, chapter one. We read, "And Jesse begot David, the king. David, the king, begot Solomon." Okay, so we know that. So in that lineage, what's happening there is we see that in the line to Joseph. Solomon was listed, David was listed, and Solomon was listed. But then if we go over to Luke, and we look at the line of Christ that's presented there, the lineage of Christ, Nathan was David's other son, and he is listed here in Mary's um, thing in verse 3.23. The son of Melsha, the son of Mina, the son of Mathus, the son of Nathan, the son of David the king. So here we have these two lines coming back together with Joseph and Mary. So the throne, but not the seed, came through Joseph's line, through Solomon and through Joseph's line. But the seed came through Nathan and through Mary's line. Israel had nine different dynasties, but Judah has had one. So since that time... 
there has only been one other king of Judah crowned. And that was Jesus when he received his crown of thorns. That's how important that is.